You guys, how crazy is this? Welcome to Coastline Covenant Church. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, we, we are a new church that was planted by Rolling Hills Covenant Church, but with four friends. These four people that we've been doing ministry with here, Michael and Hunter, Garrick and I, and now bringing Rochelle on. We've just gotten to do ministry together for uh, a while now. Garrick and I, probably over 10 years. And uh, getting to launch this church is just very much an act of love and of faith on our part to do so. But I know it's also an act of faith on your part, too, because I mean, you're here and you have no idea what, what you're walking into. And this could be terrible. And you're willing to try. And we appreciate that. We, we really do. Thanks for being willing to come. You know, we've been kind of going... Uh, since basically January, we've been kind of in a launch team phase. So if you've been on the launch team, can you just kind of raise your hand and cheer for a moment? Yes. We appreciate you guys so much. These are the people who have kind of helped us make this entire thing happen. And, and then we had our Easter service, uh, which is at Peninsula High School. If you were there, hands up. Yes. Thank you. You guys have been traveling with us for a while then. All of those things have been amazing, but this right here, this is the moment that we've been waiting for to come and gather as a church, as a family, to worship and sing, and we just could not possibly be more thrilled to be here right now and to see what this thing is going to, going to become. Now, this is a preview service. If you've never been to a preview service before, that's okay, neither have I. The entire idea of a preview service is this is our place to figure out how to do this church and to make a ton of mistakes. So this is like the training wheels service. So if you got here and found the bathrooms were locked or there was no parking or you didn't scan the barcode or you're too hot or too cold, good. It's supposed to be like that so that we could learn and get better. So thanks for being the guinea pigs. Guinea pigs, we're going to do two of these and then, uh, and then we're launching officially in June. I promise you we're going to have a million things to improve on, but one of the things we know for sure is that there just is no improving upon the good news of Jesus, which is what we want to proclaim here. You know, uh, that phrase, good news, is a fascinating one, and it's one that we all know it really well, and we've all had experiences of someone bringing us good news that changed our life. I can remember being in Catalina with Melinda. We were on vacation, just the two of us, and she gave me a gift, and it was a book, and the title of the book was, What to Expect When Your Wife Was Expecting. We were, she was pregnant, and I hadn't known that going on this trip, but suddenly it transformed this entire time together, where now we're talking about what is it going to mean to be parents, and what are we going to name them, and do we want a boy or a girl, and in that moment, this package became good news. A child is going to be given to us, and we just could not have been more blessed. Uh, we have all had that kind of experience with other things in life, too. Like, I can remember buying a house that we wrote. You, do you remember that process of writing offer after offer after offer to get that house, waiting for your real estate agent to get back to you, to let you know that you got it? And if you're trying to buy a house right now, it's, you know, you write an offer, 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 you know, 92 times. You're never going to get a house. I'm sorry. So, but... That phone call that says, yes, they accepted it, and you enter into that moment of purchasing a place. We know that as well, or of suddenly finding out that you got your dream job, and you get to do that thing that you've always dreamed of. We've had these experiences of good news, and we cherish them as well. For us, one of the incredible pieces of good news was St. Andrews itself. In fact, we were contacted by St. Andrews our very last day at Rolling Hills Covenant Church. When they heard that we were leaving, they called us up and said, we hear you're starting a new church. You're probably going to need a place to meet. Why don't you come do it here? Just incredible, good, gracious news by these people. Now, we also know 
what it's like to get good, to get good news, but then over time find out it, it wasn't that good. It, in fact, was bad news. I can remember we went to a wedding one time and we had some friends say, you don't have a dog, you should take our dog. And I thought, yeah, my kids are of the age. I should get them a dog. And that seemed like good news. I was going to get a dog for free. It wasn't good news. It was terrible. If anybody ever offers to give you a dog or a pet, it is only because they have learned to hate that animal first. And they're giving you something they hate. And it's only a matter of time before you learn the reason why they hated it. And then you get to share in that hatred as well. And that was my story, hating this dog. That was such a good piece of good news, only to have it become bad news. And maybe for you, it was that house that you purchased that suddenly had a weird neighbor. Or maybe it was the job that you actually got that had a terrible boss where you came to hate the fact that you ever left it. We know what it's like to get good news and suddenly have it become bad news. And I think the question is, is that really how people feel about the gospel of Jesus now? Was it good news? And it's actually become bad news. Is it really good news? I mean, think about what has happened in the past year. In this past year, we've had the largest Christian university, Liberty, and one of the most famous Christian apologists, Rabbi Zacharias, caught in this huge uh, life-altering scandals, legacy-altering scandals. What does it mean? If the institutions that train pastors and our greatest apologists, if ultimately they proclaim a message of good news, but they are, are, are morally corrupt and bankrupt of any good news themselves, is it good at all? Or has the good news in some way become bad? You know, since the 1980s, we've seen a slow increase in the politicization of our faith. It's now not uncommon to hear the phrase that you can't be a Christian unless you vote this way or a member of this party. And if that is the case, can the good news still be good news if ultimately a political affiliation is on the same level as the cross? That ultimately, is it good news for one party and bad news for everybody else? Have we corrupted the gospel in that way? We have Christian families who are tearing themselves apart over masks and vaccines and conspiracies. Can the gospel be good news for the family of God, the church, if it can't even bring good news to our actual biological families? Or maybe the church that you attended and loved tore itself apart. Is Coastline good news? Or is it just another thing to grieve? You know, maybe sometimes when we start to consider all of this, I don't think it's uncommon for us to ask the question, was it good news for a time and it's just not any longer? Maybe the gospel was good news for a few generations ago. It was good news for the 1950s. It was good news for the 1900s. It was good news for early colonial America, but it's, it's just not good news anymore. It had an era, it had a time, it had a lifespan, but America is a modern country and it just doesn't have a place here any longer. Certainly, some will say that. It was good news, it's just not good news anymore. Or, there are some that would say, it was good news for a part of my life and a time of my life. It was great for me as a child to have the Christian education. It was great for me as a student to have a youth group. It was a great place to raise a family, but now, I don't need it. It was good news for then, but it's not good news now. You know, we should ask these questions. We should look these questions right in the face. We should wrestle with them because I promise you they're being asked of the church. Russell Moore has this incredible line, and he says this, The problem is that non-Christians don't believe the good news. The problem is that they don't believe that Christians believe the good news. 
like the church in Ephesus in Revelation, have we forgotten our first love? Have we forgot our love of Jesus? And in his place, we have put a love of ourselves, a love of preference, a love of power, a love of country. We have put a love of all of these different things, and as a result, the good news is slowly being suffocated. And that although we talk about needing to proclaim the good news to the nations, what we really need in this moment is to proclaim the good news to ourselves again, to hear it again, and to receive it again. Because ultimately, if you and I, the people who are meant to proclaim the good news, if we don't believe it, breathe it, know it, if we're not preaching it to ourselves, we shouldn't expect that anybody else is going to believe it. That great revival that we want to see, that great renewal that we want to have happen, it is only going to happen when the church preaches the good news, not just out to the lost, but to itself, where it looks itself in the mirror and gives the good news to itself and comes again to a place of repentance and reconciliation. And that's where I want to take us to today. You know me, we're going to do some Old Testament stuff today. We're going to start in 2 Kings. We're going to work our way to Isaiah, and we're going to end in the book of Luke. But before we do anything, let me pray. God, this is fun to do. I haven't gotten to preach in a really long time, and I am super rusty. That's cool. Um, I'm grateful for my friends who are willing to come out and try. I'm grateful, Lord, that this is not a performance, but Lord, this is an abiding that happens, a, a sitting in your presence and a communing with you, a studying of your word and a listening to your spirit. Father, we pray that you would teach today, not me, but you would teach, that, Lord, today there are no celebrities, there are no heroes, there are no professionals, there are just people coming here together, humbled before you, asking that you would move in our hearts so that you could move in the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in the year 700 BC, Israel was being led by a king named Hezekiah. His story is told in 2 Kings 19. It's during this time that the Assyrian Empire is on the rise, and they're being led by a general named Sennacherib. Now, Sennacherib is famous. We have a ton of info about Sennacherib. The most interesting piece of information is that when Sennacherib captured a town, his uh, pattern was to take the men from the city and then skin them and then take their skins and lay them upon the altar. So super cool dude. So anyway, the Assyrians come into Israel and they lay siege to 43 towns in Israel, 43 Jewish towns, and they demand that Israel pay them before they stop and end the siege. Israel doesn't have the money. Hezekiah doesn't know what to do, so he goes to the temple and he takes the gold off of the walls of the temple to pay Sennacherib, thinking it will end this kind of siege. And it does in a way. Sennacherib takes the money. It ends the siege on the 43 towns, but then he surrounds Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to actually take you now, Hezekiah, and I'm going to take the capital, and then I will win in this way. Hezekiah has no more money. He doesn't have an army. There is nothing he can do. Until the Holy Spirit comes upon the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, God's got a message for you, Hezekiah. And he says this, that God is going to come and take his finger and put it up Sennacherib's nose and lead him out of the country that way. That's what he really says. That's literally what he tells Hezekiah the messages. God's about to pick Sennacherib's nose. So he says he's going to do it. He's going to stop him. He's going to fight for his people, and he's going to end the siege. And that night, 120,000 people in Sennacherib's army are killed by the angel of the Lord. Incredible good news that he receives. Incredible message of hope. But Isaiah says, it's not over. I have more news to give you, and this isn't as good. The bad news is that there's another army coming, and they're worse and they're bigger, and they're going to defeat you. It's the Babylonians. 
They're coming, and they're going to, in fact, take your people and make them slaves. But at the end of that time, there's going to come an era that is unlike any that you have ever seen, an era of peace and hope and joy. And he gives this promise to them in the famous passage of Isaiah 61. I've asked Safi to read it for us. Isaiah 61, 1 through 6. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to pro proclaim liberty to the captives and free them to prisoners. Oh, you look so beautiful. <laughs> I'm sorry. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified, that they will rebuild the ancient ruins that they will raise the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations will, of many generations. Sorry. Strangers will stand and pasture their flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God, you will eat the wealth of nations, and in the riches you will boast. This is the word of God. Thank you, Safi. So after the bad news of Babylon comes this good news of a promise. And with that, the book of Isaiah ends. Now, when Jesus' time here on earth begins, as his ministry begins, he begins doing this powerful ministry that gets everyone's attention. In fact, Daryl Bach, the way that he describes it, he says that all of Galilee flowed with the fame of Jesus. Everybody wanted to come and see the healings that he did, the miracles that he could perform, and they wanted to hear him teach. And so in Luke chapter 5, he returns to his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue, which would have been the main teaching place of Israel, the Jewish town. This is how Luke 5 says it. Luke 4. He says, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, exactly what Safi wrote, read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone were on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, this is quite a way to launch your ministry. As he picks this passage, he could have picked any in Isaiah. They hand him the entire scroll, but as he considers what is he going to teach in the synagogue, he chooses a passage that, number one, is going to tell them exactly who he is. He is the one who is going to bring in an era of peace. He is the one who is going to come and change all things, that he is the Lord's servant that they have been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of all of it, and it's happening right now. It's a beautiful Old Testament way to tell them exactly who he is. But he also tells them something about his heart. 
because he is one who's going to care for the blind, care for the oppressed, care for the prisoners. He is one who's going to care for those who are unseen. And so in the passage, we get to see both. I want to break the passage down so we can study it. Really what Jesus says is that he's coming to bring good news to those who were thought to be bad news. That's kind of his sermon in a summary. He's coming to bring good news to those who are thought to be bad news. He begins here with good news to the poor. Really, since the beginning of time, as soon as you had two people in a room, if there was caveman A and caveman B, and caveman A killed a brontosaurus, and caveman B killed a squirrel, you had rich and poor. There always have been them. There always have been those with much and those with little. Now, here in this passage, when he talks about the poor, he is, yes, talking about the economically disadvantaged that have always been with us, even to this day and back then. But in his day, there was more to being poor than simply not having a lot of money. If you found yourself on the outside of society— on the margins because something you've done or something you didn't do or something your parents did or didn't do, it is in that moment that you were poor regardless of how much money you had, okay? So the way you would think about this, if you'd never completed your Torah training, if you had some sort of physical disability like poor eyesight, if you had one of those jobs that were dirty or uh, for the poor to do, something, uh, something menial, well, then you were the poor, If you were a child of divorce or if you had been divorced, you were poor. If you couldn't find a wife, if you couldn't have a kid, if you couldn't catch a break, well, then you were poor. You see, it's not just about economics. It was about the entire status around it that would affect the economics as well. Now, in the Jewish world at his time, culture and community meant everything. It was all about being a part of the Jewish people. And if by your decisions or someone else's decisions, somehow you got pushed to the margins. It affected every part of your life. It was shaming for you as a person. You lived in an honor-shame culture, and so it was humiliating to be somebody who had made those mistakes. At the same time, because it's an honor-shame culture, it was also humiliating for anybody else to even see you to even have to deal with you, to be in your presence because you were someone who were on the margins. You were someone who was not the best of them. And so it was embarrassing for you and it was embarrassing for them. And so the end result was, if you're poor or on the outside, people just went out of their way to never really have to look at you. They just passed their eyes right over They averted their eyes so they didn't have to see you and to deal with you. And here Jesus comes in light of that context, and what does he proclaim? I come to proclaim good news to the poor. And his good news is this. Although everybody else has passed you over, although everybody else doesn't look at you, they avoid you, the God of the universe sees you. And Jesus says, I, in this moment, see you. And the reason why I see you is because I know you, and I know you because I made you, and I made you because I love you. And even though you might not have any earthly treasures, to God you are his treasure. You are his most valued possession. You are the thing that he loves the most. And in fact, the more impoverished you are, and the more mistakes that you've made, and the more broken you are by those mistakes, in a unique way, God's heart moves even more towards us in that because he knows that he's the remedy and the cure for that problem. 
And that he knows that he can come and bring his love and bring it into that and bring you whole, which is his heart. That is what Jesus is proclaiming here. To the poor, to the outcast, he comes and brings his sight, his eyes, his attention, and his love. And in time, it will be his very life and his blood for you. To them, he proclaims how much he loves them. And his concern is that he would take our economic poverty, our spiritual poverty, and bring it to wealth in him. That as we find ourselves in him, we would suddenly find that we have so much more in Jesus and from Jesus in relationship with him that the world could ever give us. And so the poor become wealthy, heirs of all that God has out of his love for them. The challenge, though, is that although that is true of everyone who is in Christ, that we are rich in him, we sometimes still live into spiritual poverty. What I mean is this. This is out of Revelation 3.17. This is Jesus speaking to a church. This is Jesus speaking to Christians. He says this, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Apparently, you can be a child of God and be an heir and yet pass over all the inheritance God has and still live into total poverty. Why? It is because somehow, even though we have Jesus, we kind of become familiar with Jesus. We no longer are in awe of him. He is familiar to us, and we begin to chase other things in life, like success or money or experiences or whatever it might be, all the things that are offered to us all the time in this day and age. And that we treasure what is not treasure, and we come to see common Jesus, who is the greatest treasure on earth. And so one of the things that every one of us has to do who has come to say that Jesus is our treasure is to actually begin to treasure him again, to actually begin to believe that he is truly worthwhile and truly good news. We need to hear the good news again and be reminded again of that moment of salvation where Jesus captured our heart and to return to that again because if the people of God are going to treat trips to Bali as their treasure over Jesus, coastline's not going to matter at all. It's going to make no impact if our treasures are misordered. A people who do not treasure Jesus simply are not good news people. He says this then. He moves on to good news to the prisoners. And later on, he's going to say uh, free, uh, good news to the oppressed. You know, he says this right here. Um, I'll just read it. He says, yeah, he, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight of the blind and to set the oppressed free. This passage has been used to encourage people who are struggling throughout history. When Isaiah preaches this, when he brings this message from the Holy Spirit, you can imagine that the people who are currently under siege by the Assyrians hear this and they say there is good news for those who are oppressed. There are good news for the prisoners and it would have sustained them for another day. As they were taken to Babylon, they would have heard this and said, yes, there's a good news for the prisoner and good news for the oppressed, and they would have cherished that. They would have remembered God's deliverance of them back in Egypt in the book of Exodus, and they said, yes, God cares for prisoners. And ultimately, the church has always been one since it started that cared for people who are in prison. And yet, Jesus also tells us that as a result of following after him, we're going to be thrown in prison that we will be thrown into jail and that people will think they are doing a service to God if they actually take our lives. So how can the message be good news for prisoners and yet we should not be surprised if any and all of us become prisoners? 
Part of it is the way that we think about being prisoners. Again, when we think about being oppressed or a prisoner, we think about external forces which are acting upon our life, which are taking away our rights, our freedoms, and our abilities. And that is true. But Jesus says there's also this internal imprisonment that we face that comes from the power of sin. John 8, 34 says this, Very truly I tell you that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And what that means to be a slave to sin is that it has so thoroughly infected me that it affects the way I think. It affects what I desire. It affects my emotions. It affects my ears and how I hear things and my eyes and how I see things. It affects every part of myself so that I am not free of sin. And it constantly leads me away from God. That in a sense puts me in chains. And so any moment I tell God no, I am in that moment shaking the chains of sin at him again. And any time I begin to enter into conflict with other believers, I am willingly placing the shackles of sin back upon me because these are the very things that God has come to set us free from. And whenever we see mass moments of sin, of misogyny and racism, when we begin to see these things become systemic, we are seeing then internal sins move outward, not not privately repented of or publicly repented of, and they become normal. Sin touches every part of this world. The promise from Jesus, though, comes out of John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed, that we can be free of those chains. But the biggest challenge to you and I becoming free of the chains that we have is that oftentimes the chains don't feel like chains. They feel like a nice, warm bathrobe. We kind of cherish our sins. We use them because they help us actually feel better and manage our day-to-day problems. They help us kind of negotiate how we're doing in this world. So this past, oh, I think eight weeks ago, eight weeks ago we had to take some new headshots for the church website, which the Coastline Covenant website. We had to get these photos done. So we dressed up, we went to the cliffs, we took pictures. When I got them back, I was in awe because I was so fat. Like, I'm not kidding. I looked at myself and said, oh, dear Lord, what has happened? Because I didn't even feel like I looked like Sean. I felt like the guy who ate Sean. Like, I just felt like there's a piece of me there that I recognize, but there's just a lot of, like, hot dogs wrapped around you right now in this moment. And so I went, I got on the scale to see kind of like, what is happening? Is it just a bad photo? And it wasn't. I was 20 pounds fatter than I had been the year before. Like, that's a lot more for me. And so I started thinking, like, well, the camera adds 10 pounds. But then I started thinking about, yeah, but so do cinnamon rolls and IPAs. And, you know, I, I let myself have those things, you know. I don't know if you know this about me, but 2020 wasn't my best year. You know, it, uh, <laughs> so I kind of leaned into it, you know, a little, little self-care, you know, and, well, little, you know, this is the best part about eating your feelings. It just it totally works. Like, you, you have a cinnamon roll, your problems go away. You feel so good after a cinnamon roll. Like, I can't tell you have a nice, nice Cabernet. You're not worried about your problems. Here's the problem is that I go to those things for comfort, right? And suddenly I'm a big tub of goo. That's the thing about it because that comfort only lasts for a moment. It is momentary comfort, but my problems are still there, which means I need more cinnamon rolls and then yeah, I'm eating salads. So, and we do this with so many things, like it is both food, um, and it is work, and it is spending, and it is pornography, 
and it is all of these things, right? We go to these different things, and I go to them for comfort because it helps me make it through this world. And part of one of the things I, I think that's happened to us is we become addicted to comfort, and we become addicted to sin in a way. These sins that we would normally repent of, we just get so used to using them to help us make it through this life that ultimately we find ourselves detached from God, stuck into chains that feel like bathrooms, and we never realize that we've been caught, that we're in a snare. And friends, if Christians are caught still in their own sins, and if we are embracing them and consuming more and more, then we're just going to make it a difficult time to proclaim to anybody that they can be free of their sins while we're currently enjoying ours. There's a moment for us to hear the good news again and for us to say, God, search me. God, look. God, reveal. And God, help me step out of this sin and help me return to you. He says this. There's also a good news and a recovery of sight for the blind. We have a ton of stories, Rochelle did one, of how Jesus came and healed the blind. But we also have stories of how he heals the deaf, heals paralytics, heals people from all different sorts of ailments. Jesus is a healer. And he's not a healer just in the terms of like, one day you're going to die and you're going to get a new resurrection body and it's not going to have any of these problems. That is true. But he cares right now about the pain and the suffering that comes with the current disease, the current struggle, and he wants to come and bring healing to that. His good news is not for one day. His good news is right now. He says it's fulfilled in his presence. So God cares right now about where you are at, that whatever you are struggling with, he can heal that blindness. That if you are struggling with pain, he wants to heal and can heal, both through the common ways and the miraculous. But he's also worried about spiritual blindness. And I think this happens two ways. I think sometimes we genuinely want to believe in God. We genuinely want to be able to sing like some other people do here in this room, and we just can't. Like, it's like we see that it's so easy for them to believe, and we just think, I wish I could believe that way, but there's this hurdle that we can't cross. There's this boundary that we can't push through. There's this door that we can't unlock, and we want to believe, but we just can't. And so we kind of come in, and we try to be a part of it, but what's happening for the other people isn't happening to us. And we feel like somehow unbelief happened to us. We didn't choose it, but it just kind of happened, and we're watching our faith just slowly erode. And what I love about God, and I mentioned this at Easter, Jesus is one who always helps us believe. In fact, none of our faith, none of our beliefs happen without his action first. And for anybody who is currently feeling like somehow they are blind to what everybody else is seeing, in that moment, Jesus has the ability to help us see because he is the one who comes to Thomas and says, put your fingers right here. He is willing to help Thomas believe. And he is the one who goes to Mary. He says, Mary, Mary, I'm not the gardener. And don't hold on to me yet. He helps her believe. On the road to Emmaus, he comes to two, and he explains to them exactly what it all means. We have in Jesus one who wants to help us believe. He wants to come and author our belief again. And to help us begin to see, if you are somehow here today because somebody brought you and you thought, maybe I'll check out church again, even if you thought it wasn't for you, I am so glad you're here. If you're not ready to believe yet or not, I don't know what I can do to help you, but I know that Jesus can, and he loves that journey with people. But for those of us who've, who've walked with the Lord and have this vibrant faith, there still, still, still is the risk of spiritual blindness. That somehow we would still not see with God's eyes. One of the things I spent a lot of time repenting of this year and thinking through is how confident I can be 
that God sees things my way. So the things that I perceive, the things that I think, the things that I'm convicted about, those are the things that God sees and thinks and is convicted about. And I can be so certain of my own place because God, he's on my side. And I use that to kind of fortify what I already believe. But then there's a problem about what happens when I run into another Christian who thinks differently. What happens when two Christians come side by side and they both believe different things? They have nuances. They have slight differences. They have slight different, like, twists or changes or or shades of these things. What do I do in these moments? Too often what happens is that I entrench my position, I build bigger walls, and I begin to lob grenades to the other side because they're not thinking biblically. They're not thinking like I am. There must be a problem with them. Certainly they're not listening to the Spirit or they're not studying their Word, and certainly they may not even be a Christian if they can believe that. And so I slowly go through the body, chopping and cleaving those who think differently because God sees things things my ways. Certainly all of us are wrong about many different things about God, and we just haven't gotten to heaven to realize it yet. And whenever we come to a place where we come into a humble difference with another believer, our posture should not be building walls, but it should be getting on our knees and coming before the Lord and saying, search me, Lord. Search my heart. Do I see this right? It needs to be humble repentance and open hands before him. Because in that way, we stay in step with the Spirit instead of slowly destroying our witness. Isaiah says that our ways are not God's ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts. And we need to be reminded again if we're going to have a witness in this world. But with that, for those people who are willing to become good news people, the promise is here that he comes to bring good news and more than anything to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is the year, the year of Jubilee, when in Israel they would wipe away all debts. They would set loose all prisoners. They would give all of the land back. It was the way of hitting restart on everything. And Jesus says, with his coming, everything is made new. Everything restarts. It is both a going backwards to Eden and bringing it into the present. And it's also a going forth into heaven and bringing that presence of God into now. That this is the moment. This is the day and era that everyone has been been waiting for when the servant of the Lord has come to change all things. And when people heard this message, it changed their lives. In the Gospels, we see people leaving behind their professions. We see people leaving behind their father's business to go start their own. We see people paying off debts and righting wrongs and women giving away their dowries because the promise of newness and wholeness and of good news was so profound that it was better than anything else they'd ever heard. And friends, do we still hear the good news that way? If we can come back to the good news and hear it again, almost like strangers, then we have a chance to see that era of jubilee begin. Because this message of good news, it is not just ours, it is the Holy Spirit's to give. Isaiah says, the Holy Spirit is upon me to proclaim good news. His message is one that is from the Spirit. Jesus is conceived by the Spirit. He goes off in the wilderness led by the Spirit. He comes into Galilee full of the Holy Spirit to bring this message to them. And that same Spirit that was with Isaiah and was with Jesus is what makes the church the church. It is what unites us and binds us together. It is God's abiding presence inside of us. It is the seal of our inheritance. It is the promise of all that is to come, which means 
that if good news came through the Spirit with Isaiah and good news came through the message of Jesus, then we can be a good news people if we return and cleave to the Holy Spirit and cherish him again and become to believe it all over again. We need to receive the good news again. And I don't mean salvation again. We have that once for all. But we need to hear the good news again and allow it to reorient our lives and to change what we want, to change how we think, to change what we do, and to allow ourselves to be good new, pe new people again. We're invited to remember that our ways are still not God's ways and then walk with him in it. We're invited to replace our poverty with his riches and come to find that there's more riches that we're going to continually unfold for the rest of eternity. We are come, we're invited to come and replace all of our blindness and to see the world through his sight and to replace the chains that we're in for the freedom that the Spirit gives. I don't know what coastline's going to be. I don't know how big it's going to be. I don't know where it's going to meet. I don't know how long we're going to be in St. Andrews. What I know is that it can be a place that is good news for the poor, for the blind, for the oppressed, and for the prisoner. But it cannot be a place that proclaims good news unless we are a people who believe it is good news. That renewal that we want to see, it doesn't start with people accepting it out there. It starts with us committing to it again in here. Let me pray. Lord, would you make us a good news people? People who hear again that we are sinners and yet we are seen and loved. People who see that we are blind and yet you promise to make us see. People who come to see that we are in chains but you have the key to unlock it. And God, may we come to find that you are better than anything else we've had. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.